For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. My name is AJ, and I'd like to thank everybody who's been listening. And I ask that if you're listening on iTunes, give us a good review and a five-star rating and share the podcast with a friend. You can have new episodes every Tuesday on iTunes and carstories.com. Today, I am joined with Chief Curator of the Peterson Automotive Museum, Leslie Kendall. Leslie, thank you so much for coming in today. Hey, AJ. It's a pleasure. Uh, We work together in the same office. I've known you for two years now as I've been working here at the museum. It's been an incredible transformation going from being an open museum that was closing down, a 13-month renovation, and then now reopening the museum. So I want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about how you first got involved with the museum. But we'll start with the very beginning for you. What is your earliest automotive memory? Uh, my early, very earliest automotive memory, I think, was um, riding in my mother's 1963 Volkswagen uh through the eucalyptus trees in uh, Del Mar, California. And what first started it off for you? What, what first attracted you to cars? I just remember looking at cars and thinking there's something exciting about that car moving, and there's something about that person inside of that car. There's, the, the car said something about the individual. I, I thought that was a unique connection. How old were you when you realized you had an attraction to cars and you were into cars? Um, I was... I, Honestly, I was the only student in kindergarten who knew what a Bugatti was, and I was had a, a rabid interest very, very early on to my parents' um, great dismay. There, well, now, why why was there dismay? Were they not in? Were they not car people? Were they? Did they not appreciate it, or were they not supportive of car culture? I think they were terrified that I was going to abandon my proper uh, education and, and pursue something something that um, really didn't lead anywhere. Uh, you grew up locally in Southern California, uh, in Northern San Diego area. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like as a kid growing up? Because you, you were probably exposed to some, you know, it's great weather, it's great cars. Um, you probably saw some high end, great things driving around. What was the, the scene like then? You know, I, I, I have to tell you, I must be the luckiest person out there because I grew up in a, in a part of San Diego that people had interesting cars. It was a real spread out area. So everybody had to have a car. And uh, I was walking along one of the um, horse trails one day. It's kind of a horsey area I, uh, I grew up in. And I heard this buzzing. It sounded like a motorcycle. I, I looked, you know, I looked down uh, and on the street below in the canyon, it's a Type 166 Ferrari Barchetta going by. My first Barchetta I saw on the road driving, driving behind. I thought, oh, man, that's for me. Love that. Saw Kaiser Darren in somebody's, um, you know, in somebody's uh, driveway. Saw a Duesenberg driving. My first Duesenberg I saw it was driving on the street. I was behind it in my 65 Falcon. It, uh, we, we hit a hill, and it lost me on the hill. It just took off, and I thought, man, that is, that is style. That is cool. I want to know more about that. And did you, did you start to learn about it? Did you go meet these people? What were the first sort of things you would do to immerse yourself in this car culture? Well, every report that I had to do for school, whether it had been oral report or a term paper or, or some kind of essay, I, I uh, worked it so that I could relate it to automobiles in some way. And that's actually how I ended up at, at the Peterson Automotive Museum because I was in fourth grade. I did a project on the Chrysler turbine car. The Natural History Museum had a Chrysler turbine car, so I prevailed upon my dad to drive me up to Natural History Museum in L.A. I took a picture of it. And when I was working at the San Diego Automotive Museum as a curator, I wanted to do an exhibition on turbine power. 
And I remembered that car. I came up to the Natural History Museum. I talked to the person at the time, who Matt Roth, who was the curator at that time. And he said, you know, you, you can't borrow it for your exhibit, but you're certainly welcome to come up and look at it. And that visit turned out to be, um, I, I guess you could say, a uh, my, my, my job interview because he offered me a position as the um, um, collection manager at that time. Did you know what what you were sort of what was ahead of you when you took that position? I, I had an inkling. Um, what I knew was that the collection needed to be interpreted properly. It was a collection that that was kind of sitting there. It was some of the most interesting stuff I had ever seen. I was just flabbergasted when I when I saw it. And I, I remember thinking to myself, this really needs to be put together. We need to really make something of this. This can tell a cohesive story um, if approached properly and if, if uh, spoken about in the right way. And was Robert E. Peterson involved at the time? Robert E. Peterson, yeah, he was involved. Um, he was the one that offered the lead gift to get the Peterson Automotive Museum going. We, you know, the Peterson was originally a branch of the Natural History Museum, just like the... Uh, um, La Brea Tarpets is a branch, just like Hart Park and Newhall is a branch. We were a branch. So give me sort of how it, it first started. So you were the collection manager at the Natural History Museum. And do you get this call that, hey, there's this guy, Robert E. Peterson. Did you know who he was? Um, did he contact you? What was sort of the very, the emphasis of there's going to be a car museum in Los Angeles. Well, I was um, at the time I was a curator of the San Diego Automotive Museum, so um, I ended up doing. I, I visited uh, Matt Roth and and looked at the connection collection to see the turbine car, and then Matt invited me back to analyze the coll- collection to to essentially um, break down what what the cars were, what was important to the collection, and my recommendations what I would do with the cars if. if if I were to let them go, which ones, uh, if the ones that would keep, how I would interpret them. What were some of these cars? I mean, you mentioned the Chrysler Sherbin car, but what, what were some of the other cars that impressed you in the collection? I think some some of the most exciting brass era cars uh, around, exciting because they were unrestored, never been touched. Uh, 1908 Pierce Great Arrow, a 1909 Welch. Um, people don't know it. Welch actually ended up becoming a part of General Motors, but it was an extremely advanced car. It had a single overhead camshaft. This is in, this is in 1909, 1910. I mean, it was just it, it was real extraordinary with roller cam followers. It, it, just a remarkable car. Uh, they had a 1907 Aero car. One of the, for 1907, a very sleek car built in trunk, uh, way ahead of its time. Um, they had other interesting cars. They had a 1953 Allard. Uh, K3, Cadillac engine, again, an entirely original car with the original side curtains, everything, untouched, uh, original. They had a marvelous collection of L.A. built cars, which got me to really love L.A. manufacturers. Um, they had a uh, a 1902 Tourist. Tourist was built by the Auto, Auto Vehicle Company. It was a world's, pardon me, L.A.'s first um, car manufacturer, the first manufacturing LA to series produce a vehicle. Tell me a little bit more about that because, you know, we talk so much about Los Angeles cars, either here on the podcast or in the museum. We're located in Los Angeles. Um, and people might think of car culture in Los Angeles. They'll think of hot rods. They'll think of racing. They'll think of customized cars. But I think a lot of people don't know, and it's something you probably know a lot more about, is there was production. There was factories. There was auto manufacturers. 
uh, right here locally in Los Angeles. A lot of manufacturers did spring up locally, and this is before the days um, that manufacturing was centralized. Um, this is when it was cheaper for manufacturers to to develop satellite facilities or just spring up independently of anybody. Um, so you had tourists here, you've, you had Durocar here, you've, you had a, a, any number of others, uh, other manufacturers that, that built cars for the local climate, um, for the local for local consumption, built in the West for Western conditions. L.A. ended up, you know, not being a center of automotive production because it lacked three basic things. It lacked timber, coal, and fresh water. And those are the three things that are really needed to support any industry, any manufacturing industry. It still are. Um, but what L.A. did have was plenty of creativity. So we didn't exactly build the cars anymore, but we had a heck of a lot to do with what they look like, how they performed, and how people perceived them uh, in relation to us. And was that a part of the Peterson's mission statement early on? Was that something you sort of went, if we're going to have a car museum, let's have a mission, let's have a focus, an idea? How did the focus on um, Los Angeles and using the car as a primary example start with the mission of the Peterson? That was always the mission of the Peterson Museum. It hasn't changed. Still is the mission to explore and present the history of the automobile and its impact on American life and culture using Los Angeles as the prime example. At the end of the day, we are a local museum. We do speak to local issues, uh, and one of them is the automobile. So it's perfectly natural for Los Angeles to have that kind of museum. What was your first interaction with Mr. Peterson like? I first met Mr. Peterson at a SEMA show. I believe it was 19, what did it, 1994. SEMA, uh, Specialty Equipment Manufacturers Association, have a show every year in Las, in Las Vegas. I think the second biggest um, show in Las Vegas. And I remember seeing this, this man uh, with, with this deep, husky voice who, who really had his wits about him, sharp, quick study, keen eye. You, you could just tell this guy was something special. And this, this was somebody that you just shut up and you listen to, and, and you learn everything you can. And what, what did you guys talk about? What, what was that first interaction? Well, our first interaction, we really didn't talk about anything. I was introduced as a collection manager, which was, I still was at the time. And um, he said, oh, well, welcome, and glad to have you, and essentially good luck. It wasn't an in-depth conversation, but we got to know each other a little bit better as the years went on. And eventually you went on from collection manager to you became the chief curator of the Peterson. So how did that first sort of, what did the, what was the first steps you took to open up this museum um, back in the early nineties and to get this museum um, from just an idea in an empty department store building and turn it into you curating the Los Angeles car museum. The, the layout and the approach of the Peterson automotive museum was already established when I got here Everybody already knew every, the decision had been made to make it make the first floor at least a series of gigantic dioramas of which cars were a part. But they did not know what cars should go in those dioramas. I helped them with that. I, you know, I, they, they knew they wanted a car that was stuck in the mud, but they didn't really know what car would have been a, be appropriate for a car that would have been stuck in the mud in 1910, 1911. And fortunately, um, they had a car in the collection that was absolutely the perfect example, exactly the kind of car that you'd want to talk about for that kind of situation in a 1911 American underslung. They had a blacksmith shop, um, which was tailor-made for the Breer. 
they had a um, a new car showroom tailor made for tailor made for uh, any number of cars. They didn't have enough because it's a new car showroom. You had to get three of exactly the same year and make of car. It could be different models, different colors. So we went uh, we went for Auburn and Cord. Got a couple Auburns and Cords, put them in there, and filled filled out the rest of the first floor. When did the museum first start expanding its collection? And what were some of those cars that were on your short list of, if we're going to start building up a big, good collection here, here's what we need to go get? I think one of the first things that 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 I did was was help call the collection, um, help decide what not to keep. We, we got rid of 12 cars. Uh, initially, the museum had... Um, uh, five Model Ts. You don't need five Model Ts to tell the story. Early Model T and a late Model T are 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 pretty good. Um, when you're dealing with limited public funds, uh, you have to be very very careful about what you choose to what you choose to keep. Um, but I developed. I, I looked at the mission, and the first one of the first things I did was to write a collections policy, collecting policy for cars, cars that we will accession into the museum collection will fit these particular guidelines. And then, then I went about, it was a natural outgrowth. I kept my eyes open for, for the, for things that we, that we needed badly. In fact, one of the very first cars, uh, in fact, the very first car we ever actually purchased, I had to get specific, um, um, permission to purchase it and had to get a budget was a 1948 Davis, a car that we just now restored a car that's been on Jay Leno um, and, and been in you know high profile other high profile um, um, venues, but it's it's a car that really speaks to L.A. It's quirky, it's strange, it it's it's uh, advanced in so many ways. It it speaks to uh, you know a, a seller's market in Los Angeles that people thought would go on forever but didn't. What were some of the earliest exhibits you you as the curator got to put on? Well, the very first exhibit. Uh, was the what well, one of the very first uh, when we opened was was um, French cars, uh, French cars of the Art Deco era, which coincidentally we've we've got one right now in the brand new museum. Uh, I love putting on that exhibit. Those kinds of cars had always been my favorite, and and we thought right out of the gate we have to show people that cars are art. Cars are not just function. Cars you know do things for us, but that's not where it stops. Cars can be art um, just as much as they could be another layer of clothing. People, especially to people in Los Angeles, we put on our cars. We don't just get into them. People throw around the word curating a lot, um, it, you know, and I think sometimes curating and collecting get confused. Um, there are collectors and there are curators. So you put together a collection, but you curate an exhibit. What goes into actually curating a fine exhibit? Well, you develop an exhibit thesis. Uh, what is this exhibit going to be? Um, it's for example, we did an uh, exhibition on aerodynamics, called it From Art to Science. Those were, those were uh, appropriate terms. So we thought, well, let's, so we're starting with the art. I mean, they didn't have uh, wind tunnels back in 1905. So let's go back and see what they did have. And, and these first tentative, tentative um, uh, forays into, into aerodynamics and streamlining and then, and then take it from there. But you always start with the thesis. You, I do a shoot the moon list. For if if this was a perfect world and I could have every car that I wanted for the exhibition, what would it be? And I start there, and then 
if I find something isn't available to me or I can't get it for some other reason, then, then I back down and I go, I go to my uh, second choice. But it's always with the view towards having the best possible group of cars, the best curated representation of vehicles that speak to a particular topic. How usually close to your list are you getting when you have your shoot for the moon? Because I imagine there's not too many bigger car museums in the world calling up a, a collector and asking to borrow his car. Well, when we first opened, it was a little different. Um, I people were people loan their people do not loan their cars to institutions. They don't loan their cars to buildings with with no faces. They loan them to people. So I had to get I had to have people trust me and understand me. And because of my background at the at the San Diego Automotive Museum, people had heard about that. And because we were branching the Natural History Museum, people had heard about that. I was kind of I was fortunate to be able to put the two together to get people's um, to earn people's trust in in what it is we were doing, and and most people, very few people said no. When we opened the museum in 1994, we had a Bugatti Royale on display. A local collector loaned his Bugatti Royale. What what is sort of the the hardest or furthest you've had to gone to get a car for an exhibit? I think I think the farthest we've had to go to. to get a car for an exhibition is what's uh what we did when we reopened the museum just now just a month ago and that was the um fiat the uh, compressed natural gas powered fiat in our alternative power exhibition we wanted the firsts we didn't want to people we didn't want to tell people well this is sort of the first or it's real close to being the first we wanted to show examples of the first of certain types of vehicles so we have the very first hydrogen fuel cell vehicle built by General Motors in 1966. And we have the very first compressed natural gas vehicle, um, which was built. Uh, it's actually a modified Fiat that was modified by uh, a, a natural gas company, Tartarini, uh, in England in the 1930s. Or pardon me, Tartarini, uh, Tartarini in uh, Italy in the 1930s. And, and I imagine it's, you know, it's you got to you can't just Google where's the first Fiat compressed natural gas car. You know, you can't just look up where these cars are. You have to sort of put together a Rolodex or have a mental note or, or you got to kind of know, you know, if I said I need another Bugatti Royale or I need uh, an alloy body 300 SL, I'm sure within a phone call or two, you could get the owner of one on, on the line. Cars are like people, six degrees of separation. If you can't find a car in six phone calls, then it can't be found. Um, what I do, I keep a... A, a a Rolodex, as you as you say, kind of. Um, I keep a file. People make a car available to us. I I I never throw that information away. I you know it may be twenty years old, and but who knows? A person still may be there. A person still might have the car. It's a place to start. Has there been something that just couldn't be found? Has there been a we need this car and it's just not out there? It we we can't locate it. Um. They're not really because I've been able to find representative examples or or um, adequate replacements for for things. There has not been a story that I've not been able to tell. What what has been different about this time around? Twenty years later at the museum, you you have a whole new team, uh, you have whole new cars, whole new people, exhibits, ideas, but it's still you you kind of you go back to square one of. We're going to open a museum. What were sort of the similarities and the differences between when you first opened the museum in 94 and then again in 2015 when we did it here? Well, there's an awful lot of similarities because back in 1994, by the time I 
I got here, the general layout had already been decided. And it's the same for the new museum. The general layout had been decided. And I was invited to participate in the selection of vehicles and how we told certain stories. Um, and indeed, what some of those stories were. But again, the general layout had already been determined. And I uh, helped pull together cars that told a cohesive story for a particular uh, topic, particular gallery. How have you seen this world sort of evolve? Because... In the car market, the retail market is always going up. It's down. Um, you know, one day muscle cars are hot. The next day, Japanese cars are hot. The next day, brass air cars aren't so hot. You've been going to Pebble since the '80s. Um, you've been seeing all these cars. What are some of the patterns and the similarities you've noticed? What What are some things that have started to surprise you that you never thought you'd see happen in the car community? I don't know that I would say much has surprised me because I'm I'm ready for anything. Uh, you know, car people are are unpredictable. It's who knows what we're going to like. You know, twenty. Who knows what we're going to consider important? Uh, twenty years ago, you know, people laughed about cars built in the 1980s that had their original smog equipment. Now it's kind of a big deal if if you're selling a car that was built in the 70s or the 80s and it's got the original smog equipment. Then that's that's something to that's something to talk about. It's, if it's if it's important to automotive history, we want to keep it. We want to preserve it, even if it's even if it's typical. We we are the people who essentially get paid to take the broad view of things. We we get paid by people who trust in us uh, enough that we know what's going to be important. That we know what we're going to pluck out of the. Um, uh, body of availability vehicles to preserve and conserve and protect and interpret for the next generation. Um, you know, 1971 Pinto may not mean a lot to people. I would love to have one for the collection. I'd love to have a first year Vega. I'd love to have a first year Gremlin. Those are incredibly important to Los Angeles part and, and motoring in general in America in the early seventies. I, I guess with, with cars you want, um, do you ever, is there a list of, Here's cars we need, and here's cars I want. I don't have any list of cars that I want. Yeah. Um, I everything with. I set aside my personal taste when it comes to this collection. There are cars that I want desperately for the c collection that I wouldn't want personally, but they're so important that we really need them. Uh, but on the same token, there are cars that I really would like to own, but they're absolutely not right for the collection. But I do have a, I, you know, I do have a a list of vehicles I'd really like to, I'd really like to have. Well, name a and a few just. Here's here's some ideal shoot for the moon. If these can be in the collection of the Peterson, this would be incredible. Well, I, I think you know, I think I'd love to have a Miller, a Miller, uh, Harry Har Harry A. Miller um, built racing cars. They're jewel like racing cars. They're beautifully engineered. Um, front wheel drive, uh, um, you name it. All all different kinds of 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 I interesting technological. Um, uh, advances were embodied in his cars. Um, I'd, I'd love uh, to have a uh, car that was bodied by Bowman and Schwartz. I'd love to have a car that was uh, bodied by Darren. We don't have either of those in our collection. It seems like kind of a natural, but 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 we don't. And again, at the end of the day, we're a local museum. We really should be speaking to local topics, and we do. And uh, eventually, we'll have those kinds of cars. And something that surprises me in this community, and I see it in you, is you are overexposed to cars. You read about cars, you see cars, you t we talk about cars, uh, we dream cars, we drive cars. 
And at the end of the day, we go home, we're still into cars. We're not burnt out. Uh, before I worked here, I worked in the music industry, and I was a big music fan, and I got burnt out on going to concerts. <laughs> I have yet to get burnt out on going to concours or car shows or to talk to car people. And it seems like, you know, over 20 years, you're still pretty much just as interested in the cars as you were before. And what do you think that is that keeps car people and especially keeps you interested in knowing what's out there and and passionate about car i mean you you have a you know a personal car that you just went out and you bought and you're driving and you enjoy what makes you at the end of the day still want to go home and do car stuff yeah that that's real interesting a lot of people wouldn't would, wouldn't think that you know but if if i was i used to be a mortgage loan officer and at the end of those days i'd go home and i'd read car books to relax well you didn't want to read uh, mortgage loan books when you went no home? no no i know most people would of course but no that wasn't me i i still go home for my job as being the curator of the peterson museum and researching cars i read car books to relax when i get home i i go home and i look on ebay so it's maybe it's just a new generation of of doing it but no it's i look on craigslist for cars when if i go home if you're interested you're interested you're in it in for a penny in for a pound and you're not going to make the reason you're in this business is because you like it and you have to have a personal interest and cars pardon the metaphor they fire on all cylinders for me they're they're intellect they're interesting from a historical standpoint of view they're interesting from a, a beauty because of their beauty from their their technical uh, ingenuity um they've they've they're on movies. They they have a, a relevance to fashion. They have an overlap with um, religion, uh, an overlap with uh, architecture, an overlap with politics. I mean, they they, they cover so many things. There's almost no story you can't tell with a car. And you also you read books and you have your collection at home of books. Uh, how do you ever think you're going to run out of learning about cars? Are you still surprised with? Every day, something new you learn that you didn't know before? I'm extremely surprised. Um, I, I look at, especially the antique, the brass era, there was so much invention in, in that time. And a lot of things that people think are, are brand new. They, how many people knew that there was a nav system back in the 1900s, the early 1900s, over 100 years ago? How, what, how was it? What, did it? what did it do and work? It was, it was a copper disc that you attached to a... Um, uh, a um, a branch of off of the speedometer and as you went along the copper disc would go along and it, it would eventually tell you turn right here turn left here um really yeah uh, yeah uh-huh i've only ever seen one in my life it was at a museum on the east coast but there were i, I couldn't believe it i saw it in front of me I go, man i had absolutely no idea but you know it figures nothing's really new and we've we've kind of already thought about this stuff before it's just the way that the way that we package it and the way that we um engineer it it is funny because is uh, you know we have autonomous car. We're in a world where you're going to soon be able to, you know, your garage can be filled with uh, an autonomous car, uh, an all electric car, and an 800 horsepower car, and all roughly probably the same price. Hmm. And I never thought I would live in a world. I don't think anyone thought they would live in a world where that was going to become the social norm. Yet at the same time, cars still look like cars, and cars still function like cars. And, you know, they all have the seat configuration and the headlights and the wheels and it from a Model T, I mean, you know, from these cars, you kind of go, they've made leaps and bounds. But at the same time, 
There is nothing new. You are right. There is, you know, the, people were working on autonomous cars in the seventies and were working on electric cars and, you know, in the teens. There, people will always need automobiles. People will need to get from A to B. Um, the only way we're going to get around using automobiles or, or, or the terrestrial equivalent is when we learn to teleport. That's it. Then cars will become obsolete, but until then, we're still going to have to get in some kind of land transportation module to go from we are from where we are to where we want to be. And and I could safely assume teleportation probably not too far around the corner. Um, uh, I hope they get it right, or I'm not doing it. But uh, or you're going to be working on a teleportation exhibit. They're working on it. I, I know they're working on it, and only then will cars become obsolete. Is there anything out there that's left for you to sort of automotively conquer? Is there an exhibit or is there a car you want to acquire or is there a concourse you want to go to or a race or a collector you'd like to meet? Is there something on your automotive bucket list you still want to check off? Uh, There's plenty that I still want to do. And what I want to do is usually what I'm not aware of yet. There's something that'll come up this year that I'm really going to want to do, or I'm going to want to do it next year when it happens again. I know that. It's like, yes, you know, Ferrari, what's his favorite car was? It's the one I have yet to build. And in in a way, that's for me. I I just, I, I want to experience everything, not for me, but because if I can do something, I represent the museum, first of all. I don't represent me. When it's, it's not Kendall that goes to a, a Concord. It's the Peterson Museum that goes to a Concord. When I interface with people, when I talk to people, when I in, invite them to, to exhibit an automobile, it's not me. It's a Peterson Museum that's doing that. And I want, I want us as a museum to be exposed to as many things as possible uh, to, to get um, to be in as many high-profile venues as, as, as we're able to. Well, Leslie... Thank you so much for coming in, taking 10 steps out of your office. <laughs> Thanks, uh, AJ. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. If you're listening on iTunes, please give us a good rating and review and share the podcast with a friend. We have new Car Stories podcasts every Tuesday at carstories.com. Thank you guys for listening.